Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 18 through uh, 22. Jesus, last week we talked, Jesus just began his preaching ministry. So he's baptized by John, then he went out to the wilderness and he was tested, then he started preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's began his public ministry, people know about him now, he's probably done some miracles already, and we come to our passage. So as he begins his ministry, he begins preaching, that's the priority, then what does he do? So in verse 18 it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Christianity is, at its core, about what, who Jesus is and what he did. But being a Christian is laid out right here in this passage. So what is Christianity? It's, it's what Jesus did for us, but being a Christian is right here. And it's very simple. The disciples become the first church. So these disciples that are called right here are your forefathers. This is where we came from. Peter, we know Peter, James, John. We are the descendants, sort of, from these disciples. They discipled people, who discipled people, so on, so on, so on, until it gets to us. So when we read the story of these disciples, it's our story. It's the kind of people we are. Sometimes we can get disassociated from the text because it's so old, so long ago. But they're exactly the same as us, called by Jesus to follow Jesus. So what do we see in this passage? When Jesus begins his ministry, he expects certain things, he offers certain things, and he calls certain people. So he calls, he expects and he offers. So what do we see here? What does it mean to be a Christian? That's what this passage tells us. What is Christianity? What are we supposed to do? You're going to get a lot of answers in your life. We live in a country that is comfortable with Christianity, so you'll see it on the news, you'll see it on television shows, you'll see movies, you'll hear songs. Uh, all sorts of Christianity will be thrown at you to tell you what it means to be a Christian with a hundred different answers. You'll go to churches that'll tell you one thing. You'll talk to family members that'll tell you another thing. So what does it mean to be a Christian? And it's very simple, as we'll see. It's very simple and very difficult. So what does Jesus do? As we've seen with Abraham, it begins with, verse 18, and Jesus, not and the disciples. Christianity begins with Christ. So simple, but we forget it so often. It's not, what do Christians do? It's, what did Christ do? So, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. What's the first thing Jesus does after he begins preaching? He begins his ministry, he begins preaching, and his first step in building the kingdom is to do what? Go find people to help him. Now, Jesus doesn't need any help. And we'll see that through the whole rest of the book of Matthew. His disciples are no help. 
That comes much later. But he wants them to help. And this is powerful because Jesus doesn't need any help, and yet he seeks help. He saw them. He was looking for them. They were not looking for him. He was looking for them. He immediately began looking for co-workers. So what is it? It shows us what Jesus expects because by what he does. He wants people to walk alongside of him while he's preaching. And so what does he do? He has to seek them. If we don't understand the beginning of Christianity as God seeking us, we won't understand anything else. The foundation of Christianity is that we were not looking for God. We were not looking for Jesus. The disciples here were fishing. They were looking at other things. They were just living a normal life. So in order for them to become disciples, Jesus had to look for them. Jesus had to go after them. Nothing has changed. We are no better than they are. And we're no worse. We're the same. And Jesus is the same. Abraham was not looking for God. God came to Abraham and called him out. The disciples were not looking for Jesus. Jesus came to them. You were not looking for Jesus. You were not seeking him. You were running from God. And God came and sought you out. And this is interesting because Jesus is called a rabbi. And so the rabbi tradition is, is pretty clear in the, in the Bible or, or in the Bible times. We know a lot about rabbis. The, the Jews kept a lot of records. And it was common for rabbis to have followers. So Jesus having a dis- group of disciples, that was common. No one, no one was surprised to see Jesus the rabbi show up with a group of followers. But what was strange about what Jesus did, what was unorthodox, which was counterculture, is that rabbis waited for disciples to follow them. A rabbi would begin teaching, and if his teaching was good, disciples would say, I, I want to be like that guy. And that's what a rabbi would do. It was a little demeaning for a rabbi to go find people to follow him. It was like, if you were good, they would just follow you on their own. And so the tradition was rabbis never sought out followers. Disciples sought out rabbis. So what Jesus is doing here was sort of scandalous. It's almost humiliating for him in the world's eyes. If Jesus is so great, if he's so much the king of the Jews, then why don't people follow follow him on their own? Why did he have to go to where they were working and call them? And this shows us both the nature of Jesus and the nature of man. They should have followed him on their own, but they didn't. We should follow God on our own, but we don't. And Jesus should not have to seek us, but he does. This is what we call grace. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve, something good. Jesus initiates. Jesus goes after them. Why does Jesus initiate? Why does he go seek these disciples? One reason, because he knows they won't seek him. That's it. You know why Jesus came after you? Because he knew you wouldn't come after him. Once we realize who we are, we can see how great Jesus is. Once we know that we are sinners, preoccupied, distracted, focused on things that are not worth focusing on, then we can appreciate how great Christ is for coming and looking for us while we're distracted. So Jesus seeks them. He goes out of his way. 
This is the story of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is God going out of his way to create people, to seek them, to save them. One hymn says, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. From heaven he came and sought her. That's what it took. This story, this little story of him finding them is part of a big story of God coming from heaven to find Peter. Coming all the way from heaven to go seek out John right there on the seashore. It's God coming all the way from heaven to find you. And aren't you glad? Because you never would have found them otherwise. There is none good. There is none that seeketh after God. They have all gone astray. We have all turned to our own ways. But God sought us. And look how he does it. He didn't just seek them. He didn't just call them. Notice how he calls them. Then he said to them, follow me. And in the Greek, it's even more blunt. Just one word, very short word. It's a word of authority. He didn't say, hey guys, how's it going at your job? I'm Jesus. He walked up, he said, hey, follow me. Now, why did Jesus get to say that? Just because Jesus seeks you does not mean he is not king. Just because he came from heaven to find us does not mean that he did not create heaven and earth. You see, the grace of God is him saying, I'm going to command you. That is grace. It's God letting us obey him. And so he comes in with authority. He does not argue with them. He does not bargain with them. He does not sell them. You see, America is all about selling, isn't it? We're a nation of salesmanship, of going out and hustling, presenting the best picture of something we can. And often the church buys right into that. How can we market the message? How can we present the gospel in a way that's most appealing? But that's not what happens here, is it? He just says to them, follow me. That's it. Why does he say that? Because that's what they deserve. That's what they get. When the king comes to you, he doesn't sell you on something. He doesn't bargain with you. He doesn't argue with you. He commands you. So we see Jesus being both consistent with his character, consistent with their character, and being gracious at the same time. From what I can gather about fishermen in this time period, they wouldn't have responded well to anything else. They're the kind of people, like many of us are, they just need someone to get in their face and say, do it. Just do it. Blunt, confrontational commands. Now, the the question is, who's giving the command? We can accept commands from people we respect, people we think should be giving commands. When you go down the road to the intersection and the light's out, you ever seen the lights go out and there's no red light or green light? You expect a police officer to stand in the middle of the intersection and guide traffic. No one's surprised. No one gets offended that the police officer is telling them to stop or to go. You're like, well, the light's out. They're in charge. The problem with so many of us is that we acknowledge Jesus as king, but when the commands come down through the Bible, 
we actually don't respect him as king. We want a little bit more persuasion. We want some good arguments, some good reasons. Well, yeah, I know he told us to do that, but why did he tell us to do it? How's this going to help me? How's this going to make my life better? How does this fit with everything else? Jesus doesn't say that to them. He just says, follow me. If you know who I am, if you recognize my authority, then all you need is a simple command. You don't need a sales pitch. And the church should be approaching it the same way. When we share God's message, we should share it the same way. Not a sales pitch, but a message from God. Simple and authoritative. That's how Jesus calls them. And that's how he calls us. He seeks us. He's gracious to us. He commands us. Follow me. And what does Jesus expect from them? Well, when you give a call, command, what do you expect? You expect obedience. So when we see Jesus calling them, and we know he calls us the same way, what he expects from them is what he expects from us. What does God expect from us? Isn't that what we want to know about Christianity? If God is in charge, and we're his followers, what does he want from us? You're going to get a lot of different messages about that. Watch anything that the world makes as far as movies or music, and they're going to tell you one thing about what God expects from people. You go to many churches, they're going to tell you something different. So we look at what Jesus said. What did Jesus say to his disciples? And we as disciples get the same message. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. In order to follow Jesus, they had to do something. They had to stop what they were currently doing. They couldn't follow him as he walked away and they continued to fish. That's simple, isn't it? Following means leaving. Following means going somewhere you're not. Jesus expects his disciples to leave what they're doing to follow him. And this is the hardest part about Christianity. It's not, we think that the rules that people put on us, that put on Christians, you should do this and you should do this and, and produce and be a good person, we think that's hard. That's actually easier. It's a deception to make you think it's hard so you'll try. But this is what's hard. Give up everything. Just give it all up. Leave it. And so this passage shows us exactly what they were supposed to leave and shows us what we're supposed to leave. Number one, they were supposed to leave their life, their way of living. What does it mean to follow someone? So Jesus shows up and he's walking by them. He says, follow me. They would then leave the, their current work and they would travel with him. You notice what he doesn't tell them? Where they're going. He doesn't tell them what they'll be doing the next day. The only thing they know is that where he goes, they go. That's an entirely new kind of life, isn't it? You see, we run our lives currently based on experience of what we have done, based on education, what we've been taught, based on observation, what we see other people do, and we make decisions based on those things. This is different. This is just wait and see what Jesus does, then do that thing. What kind of lifestyle would this be? You see, we have a lifestyle we live in. It's called the suburban lifestyle. Suburbia. You don't live in the inner city. You don't live in the country. You live right in the middle. 
And it's a way of living, but that way of living was not created by God. Do we know that? Like suburban neighborhoods were not created by Jesus? No more than this, their fishing nets were created by God. And as a result, the good things that may be in suburban life can distract us and draw us away from Christ. Here's what one guy said. I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center, and all things are served the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. Suburbia is about good roads, good houses, good jobs, good food. How upset were you when you hit that pothole on New Cut Road? Anybody else hit that pothole? Don't hit it. I was very upset. It took me from New Cut Road to here to get over what the county had done to that road. I expect in this neighborhood that the roads don't have giant potholes in them because I don't like it. I expect when I go down to get something to eat that they give it to me. Expect it because I've been taught to expect it. And it's a way of living where I expect things to be given to me in a certain way. What Jesus is telling them and what he's telling us is that you have to be willing to leave those expectations, leave that style of life, and follow Jesus. And we may say, well, what's that style look like? That's the next question. The first question is, would you do it? See, that's we want to bargain. Well, what does it mean to leave a suburban lifestyle so I can know what I'm getting into? He doesn't say that to them. Who cares what it means if Jesus is calling you to do it? If following Jesus means anything that would cause you to stay and not follow him, you've chosen. You've already chosen a certain way of living, a certain comfort level, a certain style of life. Would you follow Jesus anywhere? Would you change your rhythm, your habits for Jesus to anything? That's what he called them. Why would he expect any less from us? They knew less than we did. They had less resources than we do. And yet he calls them, follow me, change your life. He also calls them to leave behind their money. Look at James and John. See, Peter and Andrew were just, they were staying on the shoreline, casting a net, trying to get fish. But James and John were in a boat. You see the difference, right? There's a guy standing on the shoreline trying to catch, and then there's a guy going out with a boat. Who has more money? They had a business. They had a small business. They had capital. They had a boat. They had nets. They actually had co-workers, we find elsewhere. It was a family business. It was a good way of living. The only way you really made money in this area was to fish. Everybody else was dirt poor, except for the fishermen. So Jesus was saying, hey, if you want money, be a fisherman. But if you want to follow me, leave that. Change careers. Quit your job. Give up the security of having a paycheck. 
He's like, wow, that's, that must have been extreme for them. Has Jesus expected any less from us? Are we willing to change anything about our financial situation to follow Christ? Preaching is not just about getting you to do something right now. You see, sometimes you're thinking, well, you're thinking, well what could I change? Sometimes it's just getting you ready for a change. When the change comes, if you haven't been preparing for it, you won't do it. So this right here does not mean necessarily change something now. It means that you will have to change something. I don't know what it is. But a follower of Christ will have economic changes. Following Christ will change your wallet. It will change your career. It will change how you do your job or even if you have a job. And you have to prepare for that beforehand. That's why the Bible was given to us to say, Jesus is going to expect something from you that will disrupt your life. Can you do without some financial security to follow Christ? If you have to wait for it to happen, what you're waiting for is a decision to weigh the, the cost. Well, what, do you want, what does Jesus want me to do? What are you saying? What does he actually expect? But if you need the answer to that, it's because you may decide not to do it. That's not what Jesus expects here. He says, leave everything, follow me, even if you lose money, even if you lose your job, even if you have to change your career. The question for you is, will you do what they did? Immediately, they left. Does that sound like a good employee to you? They just quit. Zebedee's sitting in the boat with his two sons helping him mend the nets. Jesus comes along, they get out of the boat, and Zebedee's left with the nets and the business. And they just walk off. Can you imagine his reaction? He's like, who's going to mend these nets? Who's going to catch the fish? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to eat? They weren't thinking about any of that. They said, whatever it takes, we're going to follow Jesus. That's what a follower of Christ does. And the last thing, Jesus explicitly points out, and immediately they left the boat and their father. America has a few idols, and one of them is family. Now, is family good? Absolutely. God created the family. God blesses the family. God teaches us how to have families. And yet here he calls them to leave their family. He's, Jesus says this. He goes, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to divide father from son, mother from daughter. Doesn't that sound harsh? God's here to split up families. God's here to call followers, disciples. And when you have something else drawing your attention and you have to choose between God and your family, who will you choose? So many times we choose family over God. We stay in the boat with the Father instead of getting out and following Jesus. And we say, but I can't abandon my family. I can't. And it becomes family-focused instead of God-focused. Who, who loved Zebedee more? His sons or Jesus? Who loves your family more, you or God? See, we think we love our families more than God loves our families. And so we think God is calling us to do things, and we have to sort of hold God off to protect our families from God. You see how idolatry works? It makes you the God for your family. 
It makes them dependent on you to guide them, to give them what they need. And you sort of mediate God to them. That's not what happens here. The disciples said, if Jesus wants us to leave our Father, it must be best for our Father. And if God wants you to do something that will separate you from your family, it means it's best for your family. Because God loves your family more than you do. And so when he calls you to follow him, whatever that looks like, it's best for you and it's best for your family. But it is a sacrifice. Why is Christianity so hard? Because it means giving up things we like and we think are good and we think we're responsible for. R.C. Sproul said, everyone believes in the prosperity gospel. You can tell because they get mad when things are taken from them. We say, we don't believe in those health and wealth preachers who promise if you obey God, he'll give you a Lamborghini. But we do a little bit because when stuff's taken away from us, we say, God, what? I was following you and you took away my boat, took away my family. But he's warning us ahead of time. That's what it means. When God is first, everything is second. Chrysostom wrote this a thousand years ago. The more men have about them, so much the more they are bound. As the prisoner, when you see him with irons on his back, on his hands, on his feet, you do account him miserable. So also the rich man. When you see him encompassed with innumerable affairs, let him not be therefore rich, but rather for these very things, wretched. For together with these bonds, he has a cruel jail or two, the wicked love of riches. Jesus is here to save you from your money. He's here to save you from your family. He's here to save you from suburban lifestyle. Did you know that? He's here to save you from nice clothes. He's here to save you from good food. Because those things are drawing us away from God. A rich man can be cursed with riches. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Tell me, what do you account riches in your life? Maybe it's not money. What is it in this world that you say, I am blessed? I am rich in these things. They could be the very things that are keeping you away from God. And so what this passage is teaching us is that in order to follow God, we have to give up our idols, whether they be family, boats, fishing, jobs, whatever they may be, you give them up to follow Jesus. He tells his disciples, whatever you give up on this earth, you'll get tenfold in heaven. Which is more valuable? God himself or your job? The creator of the universe or food? You see, when you put it in comparison, it's easy to leave things behind when you know what you're going for. It's easy for the, it was easy for them to leave their boat when they knew who Jesus was. If we know who Jesus was, is, We'll leave those things behind too. So what does it mean? What does Jesus expect? He expects you to walk behind him and watch what he does. That's literally what he's called them to do. He said, follow me. And rabbi, this was the tradition. The rabbi would walk and his followers would walk behind him. And whatever the rabbi did, they did. And you see this throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. Jesus walking, going to places, and his disciples watching him. So what are we called to do? The exact same thing. It's simple. Christianity is very simple. Watch what Jesus does, and then do it. That's it. 
You don't have to make anything up. You don't really have to figure anything out. You just watch what Jesus does, and then you do it. Now, simple doesn't equal easy, does it? Jesus' life was simple. Preach the truth, stand up to false teachers, be executed. Simple. Certainly not easy. So we as disciples of Christ do the same thing. We walk behind Jesus, we read the scripture, we see what he does, and then we do it. And whatever other people tell us being a Christian is, we don't really care. Whatever you're raised to think a Christian is, doesn't matter. Whatever your preacher tells you a Christian is, doesn't matter. The real question is, what did Jesus do? What did he tell us to do? And so he calls them to follow him, but he calls them in community. Look at this, he called brothers together. See how Jesus is gracious? He doesn't say, follow me from a distance. He says, get together, there'll be a bunch of us together. And we'll all follow Christ together. So the aspect of community here is inseparable from following Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. He didn't call Peter by himself. He called Peter and his brother, John and his brother. The disciples are always together. As we go through the New Testament, we see them always together. The idea of worshiping and following Christ on your own is made up. Someone made that up and told it to you. They create it out of nothing. Well, more likely, they create it out of false teaching. It's a very European, Western idea that you can do it on your own. The pioneer spirit, that's not in the Bible. Let's be careful that we don't colonize our thinking and colonize our religion. We follow Christ, not the pioneers. We follow Christ, not the pilgrims. The lone wolf mentality is a false religion. And so we follow Christ with other followers. That's what Jesus did. That's what we do. But look what Jesus offers. He says to them, follow me. What does he give them? Well, he gives them somewhere to go. You see, when he tells you give up suburban lifestyle, he tells you to give up your kind of life, he doesn't just leave you. He says, here's a new kind of life. Here's a new consistent path for you to walk. Have you ever felt like you knew what to do next, but you didn't know how it fit into with everything else? Like you didn't know how to make sense of things? It wasn't so much the immediate decision, it was just how things fit together. What's life supposed to look like? Not where do I eat next or where do I work next, but how does life have meaning? Christ offers a coherent system of values. Now, you already have been taught a system of values. Did you know that? Your parents, your school, your job, your culture has taught you a worldview. Interconnecting systems. Jesus doesn't just tell you to reject that, he gives you a new one. And when we read the Bible, we see it all connects together. It tells us how to do all the things, and they're all connected to Jesus. He gives us a new purpose. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You know what your mission is in this life? When you follow Jesus, it's to help others follow him also. You see how simple Christ's command was? Follow me, focus on Christ, and then what else do you do? Give a lot of money, build a lot of stuff? No. Find other people and help them follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? Worship Christ and disciple people. And that's where we have a big disconnect. We're fine with worshiping Jesus. We're fine with reading the Bible. We're fine with listening to sermons. We're fine with singing. But we're not okay with helping other people do it. What does it mean to be a fisher of men? It means do what Jesus did. Walk up to somebody who's not following Christ 
and say, let me help you follow Christ. Where? What did Jesus do? He went to where they were. He went to their job. He went to their house. He went to where they ate. This is not a metaphor. This is exactly God's command for us. Find people who need help following Jesus and help them follow Jesus. Go and I will make you fishers of men, not church attenders, not money givers, not Bible readers, disciplers, helping other people follow Jesus. This is the mission of a Christian. A Christian who's not discipling others is not a follower of Christ. How can you follow Christ but not do what Christ does? How can you love Christ but not love who he loves? How can you watch Christ help people but not help people? To live a life that does not seek to find men and pull them out of their sin is to say, Jesus, you can do it, but that's not for me. I'll follow you, but I won't obey you. I'll follow you, but I won't follow you. There's no assurance for a Christian who refuses to help other people. Love is the ethic of the Bible. If you say you love God but don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. If you say you follow Jesus but don't help others follow him, you're not following Jesus. This is a hard word, but it's simple. It's love people like Jesus loved people. It's help people like Jesus helped people. It's stop trying to make it on your own and leaving other people to make it on their own and help each other. Walk alongside of people. Share your life with people. Now, the answer many of us have is, I don't think I can do that. Great. That's a great place to start. Because look what Jesus says. He doesn't say, follow me and fish for men. He doesn't say, follow me and make disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, the theme reappears. Abraham didn't look for God. The disciples didn't look for God. You didn't look for God. And you can't disciple people. Jesus will make you a discipler. Where's the ability come from? Not from within us, but from Christ. When you focus on Jesus, he will make you a discipler. That's what he says here. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's easy. That's great, isn't it, that God has done that? It makes us question ourselves, though. If you're not discipling people, it's because Christ hasn't made you into a discipler. And why hasn't he? Probably because you haven't done the first thing. If you follow Christ, you will disciple. Because he will make you a discipler. He will make you a fisher of men. You won't make yourself a fisher of men because it won't work. He will make you if you follow him. There's only two aspects to Christianity. Follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. That's it. Follow Christ, help others follow Christ. Jesus doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't have a long theological sermon. He just says, follow me and I'll help you help other people. And they immediately left their nets because they said, this is it. God himself is giving us a simple task to do, to be with him and to help others be with him. That's an easy decision, isn't it? 
when God himself says, hey, I'd like you to participate with me. Come alongside of me. You weren't there for creation. You're not going to be there for the resurrection. But you can be there for disciple-making. If we know who God is and we love people, we'll immediately leave what we have. You see, this is the problem. It's not that we're not trying hard enough. It's that we're not seeing Jesus. What's great about this passage, it shows Jesus finding his disciples, his disciples following him, but in the bigger picture, we see the relationship. He said, follow me, which is a lifelong pursuit. But you know who leaves first? You know who breaks this relationship? It wasn't Jesus. You see, Jesus calls, he empowers, he expects, but he also stays. And this is why we follow Jesus, because he's the only one who stays. The disciples said, oh, we'll follow you. This will be great. But you know what the disciples did later? They left. In Matthew chapter 26, then Jesus said to them, this is the night before he died, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And a few hours later, it says, but all this was done, the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They had no real commitment to Jesus. They followed him until this time, and then they bailed on him. Jesus didn't forsake them. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus never left his disciples alone. They thought they were alone sometimes, and then he shows up walking on the water. They thought they were alone, but there he was. But here, he was alone. Not because he left them, because they left him. And this is what disciples do. They leave Jesus. But one thing Jesus never does is he never leaves them. The disciples leave, and what does Jesus do? Does he abandon them, which would be the rational thing to do? Well, you forsook me when I needed you. I need better disciples. He does not do that. He says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. And since I chose you, I'll come back for you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, Jesus was, suffer- was crucified alone. He was buried alone. He rose alone because the disciples abandoned him. So you know what Jesus did? After he came back, after the work had been done, he went and found the disciples again. He sought them out again. He said, I chose you, so I'll find you. When they came to put spices on his grave, He was there waiting for them. They had given up on following Jesus. They said, it's over. But he hadn't given up on them. So the women came to the tomb to mourn the loss of their leader. And who meets them? Jesus met them. Found them. Sought them out. And said, you abandoned me. But I've come back for you. He met them and said, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. This is what Jesus will do every single time his followers turn their back on him. He'll find you. He doesn't leave it up to you to follow him. He came from heaven to find you. When you sin and turn your back on Jesus, he comes and finds you again. If you've been called by Christ, he will continue to call you. He will continue to find you. He will continue to seek you. And you know what else he does? He continues to give you the opportunity to do the same for others. He doesn't put them on probation. 
In the same chapter, he finds the disciples who had abandoned him, and he said, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. What is he doing? He's saying, you're back on the team. You failed horribly, but you're back on the team. He says to them, go and tell. Now, here's a side note. He was talking to, to women here. In case you thought he only called disciples of men, Peter, James, John, Jude. When he comes back from the dead, he calls women. And he says to the women, not go home, go tell. Go tell my brethren. Tells the women, go tell the men, here's what God said, here's what you need to do. Side note, I call that preaching, but you can call it whatever you want. That's what God does for you. He doesn't have different kinds of disciples. He has one kind of disciple. Men, women, slave, poor, rich, doesn't matter. You follow Christ and he tells you and empowers you to tell others also. He seeks you out when you are a sinner. He continues to seek you out while you're a sinner, while you're weak, while you're discouraged. And he says, I'm here. I've always been here. You keep on trying to run away, but I came and found you. And now that I found you, go and tell others that I will find them too. He says, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He doesn't leave it up to the disciples to ever do the right thing on their own. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You see the pattern? They mess up, he calls them. They abandon them, he finds them. They stop making disciples, he commissions them again. Aren't you glad you're a disciple of Jesus and not a disciple of Peter or Paul or James or me? None of those people will come and find you over and over and over again. And when they find you, they certainly won't put you back to where you were. But Jesus will. He always finds his own, and he always gives them good work to do. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's elevating them. After their betrayal, he elevates them to be the primary witnesses and disciple makers in the whole world. He says, I'm leaving. I've done my work. Now it's up to you to continue. That's a high bar to meet. And that's why the Holy Spirit is given afterwards, so that they don't ever have to rely on their own strength. Jesus constantly rehires us. He constantly gives us a good recommendation to God. He constantly says, you messed up, but you're back on the job. You didn't follow me for a while, but you're back on the job. And then the final words he says to them is just in case you worry if it's going to happen again, you know you're going to mess up again. What does he say? I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He cuts off every possible scenario that you could come up with. Every circumstance that you could find, he cuts it off. He says, oh, I'll be there too. Every time someone attacks you or comes against you, he says, I'll be there. Every time you fail, you betray him, he's like, I'll be there too. Every time the world around you crumbles and things are taken from you, he says, I'll be there too. When you're dying, he'll be there too. Jesus never leaves his disciples. He never gives up on his disciples. He never leaves them alone or forsakes them, even when they forsake him. So when you forsake Jesus, he's still waiting. He's still there. If he's called you and if you've repented and given up your life and chosen Christ, you're secure in Christ. Not because you stay in Christ, but because he keeps you.
He will hold you fast. You let go all the time. He never lets go. This is who we follow. Let's pray.